All right. Welcome to a very uh, spur-of-the-moment, single-minded conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. I'm a podcaster and journalist. You can check me out at um, Blocked and Reported. That's the podcast I host with Katie Herzog. My newsletter, jessesingle.substack.com. That's sort of a um, extension of this, or this is an extension of that. Uh, mostly just going to take your calls on whatever tonight. I wanted to mention a couple things. One is that we just recorded... Uh, what I think will be a very entertaining episode on the controversy in medieval studies Twitter, which is a thing that exists, although it perhaps shouldn't. Um, if you just check my Twitter timeline and poke around and literally just search medieval studies Twitter, medieval Twitter, you will find some crazy stuff. It's just a very weird, bizarre, in-the-weeds controversy that's sort of like dumpster fire internet drama at its best. Uh, that was my one sort of pitch. And then I want to talk a little bit about an article that was in the Times yesterday about Elon Musk. Um, let me just pull it up so I can get the exact headline. I think this was like a pretty ex good example of the subtle ways journalists don't do their jobs well. Um, we've got a couple of people in the queue. If anyone else wants to hop in the queue for any comments or questions about anything, feel free to do so now. Headline, present headline is Elon Musk left to South Africa that was rife with misinformation and white privilege. And um, this is an article where two reporters, John Elegon and Lindsay Schutel, uh, Elegon is the South Africa bureau chief. They went to South Africa. They talked to, I want to say 13, yeah, 13 acquaintances or family members of Elon Musk over the course of five days, and they reported what they found. And the whole top of the story is given over to explaining basically how oppressive 1980s era South Africa was, which of course it was because of the apartheid regime there. Um, the misinformation white people had about black people, um, you know, just this sort of bubble of privilege that some, that white South Africans were in, all of which is true, but none of which is news and none of which has anything to do with the question of what Elon Musk was like there, uh, during that time. Um, the reporters also tie Elon Musk's views on free speech to his time in South Africa, which is sort of awkward because the problem in South Africa was there was a huge amount of government censorship. And Elon Musk says he's anti-censorship. So uh, this got a lot of attention uh, because Elegon, the, um, one of the co-authors of the piece, tweeted – let me just get – I want to get the exact language on it because it would be – hold, please. Apologies, I should have this up. So the exact tweet from Melagon was, Elon Musk grew up in a South Africa that saw the dangers of unchecked speech. Apartheid government propaganda fueled violence against black people. But that's really weird framing because the problem in South Africa wasn't unchecked speech. It wasn't the sort of free-for-all Elon Musk is associated with because that's what people say he wants for Twitter. The problem was the government could say whatever they want and could censor other voices. So there was just a lot of attention paid to the weirdness of this story the New York Times subsequently um, stealth edited it. They stealth edited it in a way that made the piece a little bit less harsh on Musk and brought certain details further up. They didn't mention anywhere on the piece that they stealth edited it. I did a paid piece for my newsletter today about all the reasons that's a horrible practice that should die. Um, I think the New York Times is basically behind BuzzFeed and Vox and other outlets in terms of it's it, it doesn't post even like a, this article was updated after an article was updated. Let me double check. I think they still have nothing. Yeah, so they um they have a correction about a, a photo caption where someone had their name was misspelled. They have nothing about the substantive revisions to the top of the piece. So 
you know, I, I think this is an example of journalists approaching a subject with less than an open mind. I think their goal was to find some sort of dirt on Musk or to cast him in a suspicious light. They didn't find that in the reporting. Rather, they found a couple instances where he, he appeared to stand athwart the apartheid, apartheid regime. And he had a, they mentioned he went to a funeral, the funeral of a black friend, which was apparently unheard of at the time. He stood up when someone used a racial slur and said, don't do that, and was bullied as a result. Um, he also left South Africa because he didn't want to serve in the apartheid army. So I, you could, I think you should be suspicious of any journalism where you could take the exact same fact pattern and basically flip the piece's argument. Like you could write an art article about how Elon Musk had um, a noteworthy opposition to apartheid and his views of free speech on Twitter could, could come from the fact that he saw the dangers of, of censorship. So I don't know. I, I was just disappointed in this article in the Times uh, and felt like it was worth talking about. Johnny, what is up? Hello. Hello, Jesse. Hey. Um, yeah, I wanted to talk about neoliberalism. Uh, I'm, uh, I've got, I host a show myself, a podcast show on Colin. Uh, I think I uh, renamed it uh, to uh, quit your bitching and uh, fight. And uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm having a really hard time talking to or getting people to talk about neoliberalism. Uh, and, uh, you know, I talk to other uh, programs and I always like to say when I respond to whatever topic they're talking about, I'll start off with, well, under the current era of neoliberalism, right? And then I go on to give them my comment, you know? And um, yeah, I, I see a lot of people talk about what's wrong, you know? And, 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 but they can't articulate or they can't actually identify whatever their issue is, whether it's uh, free speech, an attack on free speech, whether it's, you know, the inequality, uh, uh, income inequality, whether it's uh, the corporatist, you know, just all kinds of issues, all kinds of things. And they won't, identify the reason why we're having these problems is because of the ideology of neoliberalism which really started taking off in the 19 late 1970s up to this day you know and i like and i'm just it's it's crazy you know uh, my deal is okay we understand whether you not you you can define neoliberalism you know what's going on so let's work together to overcome hey i feel bad but do you, do you mind boiling down to something i can respond to i mean do you, do you just mean yeah. sort of the deregulation and the rise of free market everything or give me right. something Let to work me, with okay. here right sure so uh liberal uh, uh neoliberalism is that right there the the the, the fact that the the private ownership of what used to be public purpose things right and uh and how it is that wages are not increasing so how do you overcome neoliberalism and that's my issue that's what i cannot get people to sit down and talk about you know you hear a lot of people say well let's organize right but organize under what you know what i mean and 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 the and and the neoliberal era is global it's not like you know let's you know go to go to a protest and stop neoliberalism in my town or you know with ATT yeah. who I used to work for right so what do you think about that yeah I mean um well what's the name of your show so people can check you out uh, it is called uh, quit your bitching and fight okay. it's on Thursdays at 7 30 p.m yeah it's, it's a little bit out of my depth just because like I would never claim to know a lot about economics I, I do know that during the time period you're talking about everything you're saying is undeniably true there was this like 
mm-hmm. or they call it sort of the Great Compression in like the 50s and 60s and into the 70s, where there was a lot less inequality than there is now. That that doesn't mean society was fair, because obviously we had a lot more discrimination, but the sort of runaway inequality and the rise of like this really cutthroat meritocracy right, has occurred like basically, I think, since the late 70s from then on, and it hasn't really abated. So um yeah, I'll, I'll um, I'm, I'm curious yeah. to check check your stuff out, and uh, I unfortunately don't have any good answers for you sure. just because it's outside I, my expertise area. Can I just give really uh, two quick uh, uh, resources here? Uh, number one, there's a really good uh, video series on YouTube called "This Is Neoliberalism." It's a five part series, and you cannot get. And I think the antidote to neoliberalism, the antithesis of neoliberal neoliberalism, is a better and a proper understanding of macroeconomics, and you cannot go to get any better explanation of how federal finance actually works than to go to real progressives. Uh, although they are progressives, although they are left, they tell you the truth about what's going on. And what I'm trying to get people to do is, you know, whether you're neoliberal, right-wing, whatever you are, it's a good idea to start with what is true about macroeconomics. So, that's, that's Thank you, point. Jerry. Appreciate yeah. it. We'll check yourself out. Uh, Patty, what is up? Have I managed to unmute? You have. Welcome. Oh, good for me. All right. Um, yeah, so I wanted to uh, respond to the fact that you unlocked one of your older single-minded columns today dealing with the um, uh, controversy over the use of the word woman in relation to birth and reproductive rights and all of that. And it was great timing to do that, given the events of this week, obviously. What I... Um, I'm calling to push back a little bit on is not the original substance of that uh, essay, which I think was fantastic, very, you know, just sensible. We know what we're talking about, right? We have, and sometimes we use woman more of an, as a social category, sometimes more as a biological category. But there was some prefatory uh, material that I did think was maybe not quite on the money, um, kind of implying that that this controversy is sort of a a nothing burger, a non-issue that we, you know, we shouldn't get too distracted by it. And I agree that the the bigger picture is certainly, you know, what's happening to our country, (laughs) not just with Roe, but with all the other rights that could fall. But I also think it's really important to be able to talk about these things uh, in terms of women's rights. And I'm really, um, I'm increasingly disturbed by how much I see organizations like Planned Parenthood, uh, ACLU, National Women's Law Center, uh, NARAL, all of these organizations talk about things like, you know, NARAL's slogan is uh, abortion is for everybody, right? And it's been just, you know, relentlessly desexed. And I think it's harmful in two ways. And I would love to hear what you think about uh, each of these arguments. The first is on the persuasive level. We can't really talk about why abortion matters if we can't talk about its place in the larger life of a woman, um, the woman's ability to take part in public life, to be able to plan her life, to be, um, as I like to say, the author uh, of her own life or the pilot of her own life. Uh, and certainly this is true for people who identify as trans men and as non-binary people, but they have not got you know millennia of uh, oppression behind them. These are relatively new identities. And I think you know we'll see as time goes on how that all shakes out. But we've got to be able to still talk about the fact that women are expected to do care work. That this is part of it, that women are, um, you know, still underpaid in the workforce. 
the inability to plan pregnancies is one of the things that has historically contributed to that. The other reason why it matters to be able to talk about women is more of a legal one, and I don't want to get into the weeds here because I'm still trying to figure it out myself. But one of the um, things that RBG was often quoted as saying was that she is uh, said that it was Roe was poorly reasoned. And I've, I've agreed for a long time that that's right, that it would have been much better to put it on the basis of equal protection. I have said the same thing for decisions like Lawrence and Obergefell, the, the big gay rights decisions. Uh, this idea of substantive liberty is something that is, you know, uh, justices have known it when they saw it, but now they don't know it anymore. Uh, that seems to me like a much less robust basis than saying, hey, everybody needs to be equally protected, including on the basis of gender and sex. And if we can't name those categories, um, we're going to have a problem, I think, advancing this more robust legal strategy going forward. So anyway, that's that's my critique. And uh, yeah, I'd love to hear what you have to say, Jesse, and maybe other, other, other listeners as well. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I'm not deep in the weeds on this issue, but the point of my article, um, yeah, I, I don't disagree. My, the point of my article is when you say uh, abortion rights affect women or women need access to con- certain types of contraception, you're, you're including people who don't identify as women because you're talking about it. There, there, isn't a cl- there, there are some instances where it's unclear when you say men and women. If you're strictly talking about biology or talking about like a social role, there's a push to have it be about gender identity. This is all a source of, of heated debate, and although also unilateral decisions made by you know, NGOs and stuff. But when you say pregnant women... You're you're including non-binary people and trans men. You're just saying biologically female people. And I know that that language has been pathologized and is treated as hate speech, but that's ridiculous because I agree with you. We obviously need language that can refer to female people, to the people who have bodies that can get pregnant and that menstruate and have babies. And um, there's no way to do that. You can just run the euphemism treadmill all day and come up with new synonyms for it, but then those will become offensive. So, yeah, I think it's much easier to talk about um, – you know, in terms of uh, just call them, say, say women. Uh, that's my basic <laughs> argument. It's a crazy, crazy talk, Jesse. Don't go there. Hey, I appreciate your, your work on this. And uh, thanks for taking my call. Thank you, Patty. Appreciate it. Patrick, what is up? Hey, Jesse. Happy, Happy Friday. Friday. Uh, so uh, in response to the Elon Musk piece, I was wondering what actually makes a successful hit piece versus what um, just kind of emboldens the base and support for the target of the piece. Because the Elon Musk piece, as you pointed out, had enough kind of facts within it that you could actually look at and say, well, actually, the Elon Musk comes off pretty good from this. Why? What are you trying to do? And if, if just economics are any kind of indication, I think Twitter – uh, didn't go down in terms of the stock market and seems to be doing pretty well. So it seems like the kind of media, like nailing and wash, uh, uh, wailing and gnashing of teeth doesn't really seem to have the kind of desired effect of uh, killing the deal. So what actually makes a hit piece good and successful and kind of works? Because the same thing happened to Joe Rogan. And I think he posted that after that kind of died down, he ended up getting 2 million more followers. And I think the kind of ur example of it would be Trump, who was basically attacked from everything, and it didn't really seem to have any kind of effect on him. Or conversely, Hillary Clinton was just so hated that um, they could have run um, a ravenous dog against her, and it would have won just because people didn't like her. Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I don't think the reporters responsible for this piece, their goal, they don't have a goal to 
kill the Twitter deal. I think it's more complicated. They probably entered it with certain prejudices against Musk and, and journalists all have prejudices and we should be honest about them. So um, I, I think any attempt to act attack a figure like this that's seen as politicized will bring them more attention and more followers, especially when there's not that much there there. I mean, I have my problems with Musk. I don't like who he who he amplifies online, who he hangs out with. I think he's been incredibly unprofessional on Twitter since it started, but this article was a nothing burger and what details they found were mostly flattering to him. So I, I don't think it's going to work. I think it'll just, it'll increase his profile and, I don't think you're going to convince more people that Elon Musk is bad at this point. Now, among the subset of people who follow this stuff closely, everyone seems to already have a pretty strong opinion now. Well, I would agree with that, but I guess kind of why is the piece being published uh, kind of what for the intent was? It seems to be like you're trying to – I suppose it could just be that you're trying to publish an article to your own believers kind of saying like this person is bad for X reasons, but I don't know. It just feels – like, yeah, I, I think I think from their point of view, the, the point was to learn more about his background and see what happens when they beat those bushes, like what birds fly out. And if you can catch them and turn them into a story, I think they entered it with the framing that there should be some connection between Elon Musk's views on free speech and his upbringing in South Africa. I think maybe where they were limited is for whatever reason, and I would argue it was due to their prejudices, they, they couldn't make the obvious point, which is that... Elon Musk likes free speech because he grew up in a racist totalitarian regime without free speech. That's a very clean story to tell, and it's consistent with the evidence, but that like, is sort of flattering to Musk, and I don't think they want it to be that flattering to Musk. Well, I mean, exactly, but I mean, that's kind of where I come down when I said that they're trying to kill the Twitter deal. I don't think they're actually hoping that it will sink the deal, but they're trying to get people to a cause, uh, which is that Musk taking over Twitter is going to create this hellscape of uh unchecked speech yeah i mean i i think i just disagree with you that that they're they're that intentional about their goals i i think their mindset is you know i'd like them to be closer to objective even though that's an impossible ideal but they um yeah, I don't know. I I don't think it's quite as straightforward as them wanting to kill the deal. I, I, I just think they were a little bit slanted against him. Well, I mean, not really kill the deal, but it is kind of like, I, I think everyone has in their mind that as soon as he takes over, uh, X is going to happen. So this story is created to justify that kind of belief. However, I think it's basically, it's vice versa. You should have evidence first that leads to this belief instead of saying, uh, I had this belief, therefore I have to find X and Y piece of evidence to support yeah, it. That seems fair to me. Uh, those those are fair points. So um, anyway, thank you for the call, Patrick. No problem. Hey, what is up? Hey, Jesse, how are you keeping? <clears throat> Happy Friday. Uh, I just wanted to ask you what your thoughts on the term um, successor ideology that's used at the moment uh, to describe the modern left or probably more describe the woke left. I think it was Wesley Yang who used that term initially. Uh, just whether you think that it is uh, a useful way of looking at the modern left and what the ideology is currently, um, or whether you think that there's alternative uh, frameworks or ways to look at it that are, um, that are better and, and that are more descriptive. Yeah. So, I mean, so for a long time, Wesley Yang has used this on Twitter and I think by successor, tell me if I have this right, he basically means that it's seen by 
liberals as the successor to sort of certain liberal democratic skeptical values. Is that about right? Yeah, I think it's nearly a, a little bit bigger than that. I think my interpretation of it is, is that it's trying to subvert and overtake like the prevailing ideology at the moment, which is current liberalism. Like that's yeah. a real radical overhaul of of, of every of, of the current ideology, um, and that it's not necessarily current liberals that are looking to bring this through, but it's the you know the the, the hardcore woke that are pushing it, and the current liberals are silent, and that's and that and it's captured a number of institutions already and it seems to be propagating quite successfully through let's say the universities media yeah. um you know and that it looks like it could be take it could take over um and you know it, i suppose it has it has quite different values in certain regards to modern liberalism so it would be a radical change or whether you think that it's describing something that's actually happening yeah. accurately or whether that so i i guess um i haven't read enough of his Substack. i i want to i would want to see if he's written some essay like fully laying it out i've seen his twitter musings on it which i'm sympathetic to i i think my approach is a little bit different in that um any term you use whether it's wokeness or successor ideology or like social justice warriors it often casts too broad a net and you'll end up you'll end up fighting over the term itself because the term will become tainted by like, oh, that's a reactionary term. So I try to get more specific about like the rhetorical tactics and often implicit beliefs I see on the left. So like one of them is um identitarian deference. And you can see Freddie DeBoer and Matt Brunig have written about this since like 2013. Identitarian deference is the idea that you need to defer to people who are more oppressed than you. And you see this everywhere on the left, and it's exploded into lefty spaces in the last decade. Um, so in something like that, it's much more specific than like successor ideology. And you can pin people down and you can say, well, do you really think we should defer to someone who's more oppressed? How do we figure out more who's more depressed? Oppressed. Uh, what if the person who's more oppressed happens to have less subject matter expertise on the thing being discussed? So I think in that way, you can sort of um, try to chip away at some of the bad habits that have taken hold in certain left-of-center communities while avoiding fundamentally pointless fights over like what is wokeness, what is successor ideology, how big is it? So I guess I just prefer to get a little bit more granular than that, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Like I think... I think personally, like the term successor ideology lacks a lot of explanatory power in terms of like it doesn't address any, well, I suppose it's not trying to like, but uh, like it doesn't address any of the beliefs of the ideology. It just, you know, purports to describe their aim, which is to take over and to succeed. Uh, yeah, and I'm worried it becomes a little bit of a name calling contest where like you're, you're successor ideology, you're woke. No, I'm not. You're just racist. And um, a huge amount of the discourse on these actually pretty big sort of epistemic and philosophical divides in the left, they just descend into name calling. So I try, I don't always succeed, but when I write about them, I try to like pull threads apart a little bit more carefully. I don't, I don't know if I succeed, but that's what I try to do. Cool. Uh, okay. Cheers. Thanks very much. Uh, have a good night. Nice call. Chris, what is up? Can you hear me, Jesse? I can. Hi, um, I, I came here for a slightly uncharitable reasons. Just for, I was hoping you were going to gossip about medieval Twitter because I wanted an explanation. <laughs> Wait, Chris Arnotti. This is the Chris Arnotti, right? Yes, hi. Oh, dude, how's it going, man? Yeah, Everyone hi, check hi, out Chris, Chris's book, Dignity, is awesome. I interviewed him about it forever ago. Um, well, you heard uh, at the very you, top you of the show. 
you don't have to go there if you don't want to. I mean, I, I will say there's a little bit of self-interest here because one of the guys involved is probably within the nastiest person I've ever dealt with on Twitter. <laughs> and, is that David um, Perry or Matt Gabriel? Uh, Matt Gabriel. Yeah. Um, is, is he the professor? Is he the tenured professor who can who can yell at anybody about? Yes. Yes. Again, okay. I'm happy to get into this. We so we just recorded a whole podcast episode on it. Um, but. I mean, yeah. I, like I said, I, I don't want to see anybody canceled ever, but you know, no, just, I don't either. <laughs> I'm just like, I've I, been I'm struggling huge, with the shot in front of it. I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan of medieval history. And so I, I, I haven't gone in there, man. I, I just, if you don't want to do it for your other listeners, I understand, but if you could. <laughs> no, I, so the, the, I, I can do it very quickly. So Matt Gabriel and David Perry, and, and I, I feel about David Perry the way you feel about Matt Gabriel, just like a vindictive prick. They wrote a book called The Bright Ages, basically arguing that we misunderstand the Middle Ages. And and in certain regards, they weren't as bad or dark as people think they are. A woman uh, wrote a was commissioned to write a review for the L.A. Review of Books. Uh, her review got spiked because it was basically unreadable and she refused to edit it. And she accused them of racism and it was nonsensical. You can see all this because she posted the review. I, I, as an editor... I can't evaluate the history stuff, but I can say it was unreadable and unfair. Um, then after they killed her review, they published another more positive review, at which point she flipped her shit and argued that the reason for that was racism rather than my interpretation, which is the other review is surely better than hers because how could it be worse? This launched a major pylon where – all of medieval Twitter went at each other's throats for days and days. Last night, I was I was not my best person. Last night, I was like retweeting stuff to try to further rile people up. But Matt Gabriel and David Perry uh, were targeted for basically blocking the crazy author who tweeted it. I think tweeted at them repeatedly. They blocked her. And because they blocked her, they therefore blocked a person of color, which is bad. Matt Gabriel posted an apology. Um it's sort of an apology, basically saying, like, I'm sorry if I didn't come out hard enough against racist abuse because he was accused of not of, of not coming down hard on people who weren't him who sent mean tweets. He did a tweet storm about it. He said that David Perry was having mental health and family trauma problems, and that's why he hadn't responded at all. So then people attacked Matt Gabriel for an inadequate apology. Everything I just said is like a tiny fraction of this. We talk about it for an hour on the episode. That'll be up um for premium subscribers today or tomorrow and for everyone Monday. But long and the short of it is Matt Gabriel and David Perry are both like the most, they're, they're truly vindictive pricks and they have constantly been part of these campaigns to attack people's reputations, launch ad hominem attacks. Uh, David Perry really tried to, he, he publicly proclaimed that people should not be friends with me, which like, is is middle school behavior and now they're at the bottom of this pylon and they don't deserve it the the accusations are bullshit but this is how it works if you get in bed with the sort of people who do this this is going to happen eventually okay that 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 sounds like that that all tracks pretty much so so the two authors i mean i I don't actually you know i don't have a i don't have anything particularly strongly against them i just found that i've my dealings with them have been have been have been i mean you know it's like you have all these um terms about you know bad behavior on twitter and they generally fit all those bad terms <laughs> oh know, totally um, all the all the worst yes. aspects of twitter are embodied for me for me i've had much worse experiences with perry than with gabriel but um yeah gabriel uh, yeah there's a lot there they're, they're so so, uh, so it sounds like they they themselves have been basically quote wronged so in, in and um 
and it's hard to it's hard to feel too much sympathy for them given their past i guess is is where it all shakes out i'd like to think lessons will be learned but i'm skeptical any lessons will be learned yeah Okay. Well, well, thank, well, thank you for the short, <laughs> of course, short, over, overview. <laughs> Check you. out the next episode. I think you'll like it. Graphitor. Graphitor, whose bio says, a machine in all caps. I got to drop you if you can't unmute yourself, my friend. All right. If you hop back in the queue, I'll get you if I have time. Tactical procrastinating, another good name. What's up? Oh, thanks. Hey, how's it going? Um, so I guess I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, <clears throat> I guess I'm too nervous here. Uh, there's like a gray area in between phobias and out outright like racism, right? So, uh. Please excuse me, but uh, if we take uh, anti-Semitism, like Hitler is obviously an anti-Semite. I agree with um, you. If you take something like uh, BDS, I think it becomes a little less clear, but I don't really know. Yep. And then, uh, you know, there's just like criticism of some of the tactics. So I, I think this applies to everything like uh, uh, trans rights and stuff like that. Sorry. I'm going to mute myself. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I agree everything's a spectrum. I just, do you have like a specific question or are you just uh, pointing I, out I that? I guess that it's, it, is yeah. it possible to expand that gray area, right? So like you've been uh, accused of being a transphobe, which I disagree with. But um, so there's a an area where you can criticize and that seems to be shrinking is there any way to expand that? Oh, yeah. Well, I think this is like something some activists have been really good at is sort of closing the Overton window. Um, I just saw like a big trans activist at the ACLU basically implying that if you have any concerns over like the long-term effects of blockers and hormones, the physical effects like uh, sexuality and stuff, are that's just like a right-wing tactic. You can't talk about that. And I think there's a lot of that. And unfortunately, there's a dynamic on the left where like – people are sort of cowed into silence because the people who have questions realize they can't ask them out loud because they'll be accused of bigotry. And um, I think that's not good. I mean, the most famous example of this was David David Shore, this uh, data scientist, brilliant young data scientist, getting fired for pointing out that the evidence, some evidence we have suggests that nonviolent protest works better than violent protest. That was seen as racist. He was fired for that. So I think this has made some lefty spaces really basket case dysfunctional and uh, – I think I think the best way to fight back is just a point out. Well, no, we need to, we need to be able to talk about tactics. We need to be able to talk about the long term effects of medication with the identity stuff. I think the people trying to close the Overton window often ignore the fact that like um, take Black Americans who are a very diverse group and they have a lot of different views. On average, they're they're more conservative on a lot of these questions than than white liberals. Like on questions like. Uh, police abolition, it's white liberals who are the most in favor of pi police abolition, not not black Democrats. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm rambling a little bit, but I think you've really identified an important thing. And I, 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 I just, you got to put people on the spot and be like, do you really mean we shouldn't be able to allow, allowed to talk about this? I, I, does that make sense? It it does, but okay, so I work, I'm Canadian. I work for D&D &D, and we get like uh defense-wide messages that like support 
obviously inclusion and all this stuff. And it doesn't seem like you can push back without like really risking your job. Well, I think, I think you probably shouldn't. If you, if you're in a workplace where that stuff's becoming important, you should be very, very careful um, about doing that because there's very little upside to the extent your, your organization, in your case, the Canadian government is like pushing stuff you disagree with. You just got to keep your head down as long as it doesn't interfere with your ability to do your work, I think. Yeah, I guess, but then... It's not a satisfying answer, but I couldn't in good faith be like, yeah, you should risk your career over a diversity training. Yeah, right, but then there's no pushback, so... I do think there's maybe ways to like... You're, it's unlikely you're the only person who feel that feels that way. You, there's probably ways for you to find other people who feel similarly. Even if you just did a, an anonymous Reddit post saying, I work for D&D, uh, I, does anyone else feel this way? You might be able to attract some like-minded people, and that's like what people what, – what legitimately good use for social networking. Well, well it is. I, I told someone that there was like 57 pronouns, and they were like, what? And then I like linked as is a silly article, but yeah, that like a lot of people don't like it. Yeah. All right, I'll uh give it over to someone else. All right. Thanks. Thanks for the call. All right, I'm gonna give you another chance, Graphator. You gotta unmute yourself. Can you hear me? I can. How's it going? Wow, I'm I uh, I appreciate the second chance. You're a nice guy. I'm forgiving. Um. <laughs> so uh, you know um. Who's the guy you had the kind of the Twitter deal with in the last couple of weeks? Is it Russo or Rufo or whatever his name is? Chris Rufo, yeah. Yeah. And wasn't one of your complaints with about him was that he wasn't really engaging in good faith, right? He was more just trying to kind of uh, – he had political aims that he was trying to achieve through his dialogue. Yeah. I mean, everyone has political aims. He's not unique in that. But I think like his sudden interest in the question of sex abuse in school or sex abuse among Disney employees, it's just because he's mad at those institutions about other stuff. He doesn't have like right. a good faith interest in exposing sex abuse. That's my argument, at least. Right. No. And I get it. And that that's a perfectly legitimate thing to call him out on. And in any kind of discussion, I mean, if you think somebody's not engaging in good faith, I just think it's hard to it's hard to know what to do with that. Um and so uh, I guess it just kind of reminds me, and I, I don't know why this bugs me, but it does. And that is that, uh, you know, you and Katie kind of have this, uh, in my, from my perception, have this kind of, um, and a lot of online people do, kind of this obviously unspoken and probably not even real kind of um, alliance slash friendship with people like Glenn Greenwald, you know, and um I guess to me, he seems like very bad faith in most yeah. of in most of his most of the things he says. Yeah, and I think that um, he like to me, it's very hard to watch. Like it's uh, he he seems to have the ear of a lot of people on the left much more. And I kind of to the point where I I just I I I am convinced that he is not arguing or commenting in good faith. On, for instance, like the Russian war or the U- Ukraine war. And I just, I guess, one, I wonder, A, do you agree with that? And then B, if you do agree with that, what do you think he's actually trying to accomplish? Because that's the one thing I can't figure out. Like with Rufo, I think it's pretty obvious what he's trying to accomplish. With Glenn, he just seems like he's 
all he care the only thing he really cares about is you know yeah fuck the US and fuck anything that could have anything to do with the US I don't know I mean I think my so one part of it is like in the course of being a human being you sort of like people or they influence you at a formative moment and yeah you probably have some degree of bias in front of it like in favor of them I think everyone does that so I like Glenn. I, I think he's often a dick online. Historically, he's been a useful dick. Like he's he's really something of a free speech purist. He's really something of a government transparency purist, a anti the the shady forms of surveillance purist. I don't think he always comports himself online well. I mean, I've mentioned this in my newsletter. I I think he sometimes draws comparisons I find a little bit flippant. Um, whether it's between Democrats and Republicans or the U.S. government and other governments, so. There are different areas of disagreement. I just I do think Twitter funnels us into like, you know, you have a group of people they're like your capital E enemy, so that's who you spend the most time bashing, and it doesn't always reflect who you disagree with the most or where the most important disagreement lies. Like if it did, I would spend all my time arguing with fascists and white nationalists, but that's that's boring. So well, I guess though, I mean, to me, I guess I kind of think that you know, especially. So much of our dialogue now is on Twitter, and I do think that who you – I don't know. I guess I disagree. I mean, you know, even you calling him a free speech purist. Yeah. I mean, do you really think yeah. he's a free speech purist? Because, I mean, I feel like he uses his his actions to silence people all the time and to get them in trouble. Well – yeah, I mean, that gets tricky. It, he definitely will highlight people he disagrees with and go after them repeatedly, and I think sometimes a little bit obsessively, although I have a little bit of that in myself. I guess the question is, like, whether that's a an example of squelching someone else's free speech, and I, well, I think... I'll, I yeah. guess, I, I mean, I think you are nothing like Glenn Greenwald, but I just think, think about, like, the way he dealt with Sam Harris about five years ago. I don't, unfortunately, I don't remember that particular Oh, okay, well, instance, I yeah. mean, just, you know, how he was... Do you, you know Sam Harris, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've been on his podcast. Do you think Sam Harris is uh, hates Muslims? No, I think he's obviously um, no. I don't think he hates Muslims. Okay, well, I mean, that is. Do you think? I mean, I guess you know, and I guess I realize this is kind of dated, and you're going to have to rely on what I'm saying here. But um, so take it for what it's worth. But you know, back in the day, he was um, basically doing everything he could to destroy Sam Harris, calling him a, a racist and an Islamophobe, and. Um, someone who doesn't like Muslims and blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. And I mean, it was just a, kind of an intention, in my opinion. Just, and those are the tactics he now is often against. I think so. Yeah. I mean, he, he tries to, he's done this switch to say he's a free speech purist. And I guess it seems to me he's not. I think he has some goal. And I don't know if the goal is simply to be a troll because it's kind of like the best troll ever. Um, but if, and if that's all it is, that's one thing. It still doesn't mean a re- mean that, we should engage with them, I think, but yeah. um, I just, uh, I guess I would like it if the people I like didn't amplify Glenn. That's right. Because I think that he's harmful. He's not, it's not, I mean, there's plenty of people that I like that are friends with and share, uh, you know, and engage with people that I don't like. But to me, he's so harmful and he's such a bad look for people that it'd be nice if more people who could, like you and Katie, could call him out. But yeah, you guys don't do that. I don't know why. So. I got it. Okay, let me think about that more. I mean, I, I the idea of like a blanket uh, 
not prohibition, but I, I'm not going to just like not amplify him ever because sometimes I I agree with him. But I should think more about like if I'm too hesitant to criticize certain people who are seen as generally in my orbit. So I think that's well, unfair. I just the last thing I want to say is that I I think Glenn himself is. I mean, there's lots of people that are have questionable things they say, and you can't not just interact with people. But I think Glenn is so singularly bad. Right. That you should really reconsider. You and Katie should really reconsider the way you deal with them. But that's it. That's all I got. All right. Thanks for the call. Um, okay. I'm going to take one more, guys. I got to go after this, unfortunately. But uh, the rest of you, I'll, I'm doing another one of these tomorrow. I tried to do two a week and I got pushed to the end of the week. So tomorrow will be another one. Neil, what's up? Haha, I made it in. Okay. So did. I didn't actually have a question, but more an important announcement is that your. So I asked you on Twitter if your uh, call in show would be on Google Podcasts and you said no, but it actually is. Wow. So for all the people who use that, you know, in this it's, fallen it's world of ours, what a what a hopeful note to end on. Yeah, but what's really interesting is that so I only listen to four Colin shows, and three of them are on Google Podcasts, including yours. But one of them isn't, so I don't know, you know, which one is it? That, but um, the uh, Justin Amash show isn't on. Justin Colin, Amash, but, get your shit together, yeah, dude. So I don't know, Come on. but it's, but very strange. Anyway, so just wanted to tell you, let you know. All right. Uh, this is me to whoever left, but I'm going to sneak in Josh. Thank you, Neil. Oh, I was trying to sneak in Josh. All right, Josh. Oh, there we go. Sorry. No, I feel like I should end on an actual question. So go ahead, Joshua. Hey, Jesse. Excited Hello. to talk to the world's most infamous Michael Sarah impersonator. <laughs> yes. Um, I guess I'm kind of doubling up on, uh, the previous conversation. Um, and maybe it's more of a comment than a question, but I, I noticed often that you cut, that you let, when it comes to the case of Chris Rufo, you let him have the last word on things. And I think you kind of partially answered that in terms of his kind of obsessive nature. But it seems kind of interesting that you, it feels like you don't press him enough, at least is my personal opinion, on certain issues where it does feel like there's a glaring gap. For example, his kind of sketchy statistics when it comes to uh, the abuse of children uh, in uh, the school system and calling him out. And then I know you brought that up, but it seems like he doesn't respond to that. He kind of answers, speaks around you on that. Oh, yeah. Well, but I think he's, he's an ideologue. And, and so I did um, a paywalled newsletter post on that. And the question of what should be paywalled in public is always complicated that at the end of the day, I'm, I'm making a living doing this, but I, I laid out very clearly why he got that wrong and I contacted the researcher whose work uh, he was citing who did not endorse his interpretation. And for what it's worth, that got into a John Chait piece about it in Daily Intel. Now, so I feel like I, I on this particular issue, I did probably more debunking than most people have. The question of how to approach him on Twitter and how much fight you get, how much um, usefulness you get out of a protracted Twitter fight where – Every tweet between me and him, more and more of his people are just like jump. It, I don't care. It's not harassment, but it's just it gets very annoying very quickly to have, um, you know, an, an ongoing protracted public Twitter fight with someone like that. So part of me just feels like I made my point. I'm glad it got into the chat piece. I'm not. I'm not going to continue badgering him about that. Does that make sense? No, it makes it might not. Sense. I, I I think that. Maybe it's just optics, but it, it it feels like again. There's often times where you're on the right side of things. I definitely think that your strategy uh, of engaging Chris by acknowledging that a lot of what he's pointing out is legitimate. You know, sometimes he takes it into extreme hyperbole, but he does bring up you know some valid points. And when you try and 
just disregard him as a whole, you're being disingenuous, but it seems like you kind of address him on the issue while acknowledging that he does get some things right. And so it just, you seem uniquely qualified uh, to, to engage in that dialogue. And I know that you don't want to be necessarily the one to lead that fight, but it's just, uh, it, it's just interesting. Yeah. I, I got to think about that more. I do think Katie and I have been pretty straightforward on like our opposition to the Florida bill and pretty steadfast on that, but it's tricky. Like when you know, I got, I had another group of people on Twitter yelling at me for not treating him as an untouchable fascist for daring to like have a back and forth with him. So a lot of the Twitter stuff is like unsettled about how useful it is to have actual conversation on there. But um, yeah, let me think about that more. Totally fair point. Yeah, fair enough. Again, appreciate your nuance and have a lovely weekend. You too. All right, D, I'll get you next time. <clears throat> Everyone else, thank you for tuning in. I'm doing another one of these tomorrow. Uh, probably let's pencil her in for 2 p.m. There's a Celtics game at 3.30 p.m., so I'm going to be indisposed for a while. But uh, yeah, ten, probably two, but just keep an eye on my feed. I'll, I'll, I'll announce it. But as always, thank you guys for listening. I thought there were some really good questions today. It was lively, which I like. There was disagreement, which I like. Uh, I want more of that. Um, but yeah, if you don't join me tomorrow, I hope you all have a good weekend. And as always, I would just ask you to spread the word about this if you enjoy what I'm doing. Thank you. Shabbat shalom, as they say.